Welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and today we're going to talk about the mother of all cognitive biases, in my opinion. It's called the framing effect, and it starts out kind of harmless, but it gets pretty pernicious pretty fast. So what you need to know for starters is that the way that you frame a situation can greatly influence um, your decision. Um, So if I were to say, would you rather buy... um, uh, meat that is 75% lean or 25% fat. Um, it's the same thing, but you'd, most people, when they're given this choice, you know, they have better feelings about the 75% lean, right? Or if you're buying condoms, do you want condoms that are 95% effective or condoms that have, five, that have a 5% failure rate? It's the exact same thing, but you're going to be more likely to buy the ones that are framed as 95% effective. Um, and there's a whole bunch of these. Um, 93% of PhD students um, register early when a penalty fee for late registration is emphasized, with only 70, 67% doing so when this was presented as a discount for early registration, right? Um, so that's taken like right from uh, uh, Wikipedia, by the way. Um, you can look up a whole bunch of these there. But um, but it's that thing, right? I'm, I'm, describing it as a penalty for late registration versus a discount for early registration, right? Um, The penalty is like giving me more motivation. Um, But this gets pretty tricky pretty fast, right? If you look at things like um, the criminal justice system and the fact that things almost never go to trial and that have most people pleading out, the fact that you have pre-trial detention, right, that you're going to jail before you actually have a trial means that you're more likely to accept a plea bargain because your baseline at this point is prison, right? <laughs> right, rather than freedom. So you're already thinking about, okay, this is something I need to get over with as quickly as possible, which is another framing effect they use, basically saying, oh, if you plead guilty, you'll get an earlier release. Rather, and, and so you're thinking, oh, this means I'm increasing my chances of getting out early versus the 100% chance that I'm now going to jail. But just those little twists and how things get framed has, make people make decisions that have huge impacts on the rest of their lives. And there's a little bit of a pattern to this about how we make these decisions when, when things are framed a certain way. So the kind of famous experiment that's usually used to describe the framing effect um, is one where you say, okay... Here's the scenario. There is a horrible disease, and um, we aren't sure exactly how to cure it, but we're going to try a couple different treatments. Which one do you think we should try? And I say that, okay, treatment A will save – there's about 600 people that are going to be affected by this disease. And treatment A will save 200 lives. Treatment B has a 33% chance of saving all 600 people, but a 66% chance of not saving anybody. Which do you choose? And most people choose the one that's, oh, treatment A, it'll save 200 lives. Great. Now, I can give you the same scenario and say, okay, same problem, 600 people are going to be affected by this terrible disease. Treatment A, 400 people will die. But treatment B, there's a 33% chance that no people will die, but a 66% chance that all 600 will die. Now, in that case, most people go with treatment B. And the reason is when you frame something positively, people tend to um, avoid risk. Um, when you tr- when you frame something negatively, they actually tend to go with something riskier, which seems counterintuitive. But when you look at those two examples and you realize that um, treatment A in both cases was the exact same treatment, right? It saves 200 lives or it's going to kill 400 people. Basically the same treatment. Um, but since I framed it that way, you're actually going to go for something that feels a little riskier because you're trying to avoid its loss aversion. You're trying to avoid loss, something, something bad happening. 
Um, so that's something that can be manipulated. Um, if you're trying to get somebody to uh, take a risk, you basically frame it as uh, something bad's going to happen if you don't take the risk. If you're trying to get something, somebody to act conservatively, say, oh, well, here's this great thing we can get, and they'll try to avoid any kind of uh, risk that endangers that. But all these things come down to sort of how we interpret situations, right? If you see someone close and open their eye, were they blinking or were they winking, right? Like, what are you attributing that to? Or if there's going to be, you know, a public uh, policy issue, let's say there's going to be uh, the Ku Klux Klan wants to have a rally. I could frame that as a free speech issue, in which case more people are likely to uh, be in favor of it. Or I can frame it as a public safety issue, in which case people might be less favorable for it. And these have been played out in experiments. If you also look at the way we frame things like poverty, how we talk about poverty, there was a study that looked at how the news reports on poverty. And generally, news reports are episodic. They're anecdotal. They're sort of one-off reports about poverty that make them seem sort of like isolated instances versus um, what they call thematic coverage, which looks at more abstract themes um, and higher level, like, you know, how policy decisions affect these things. And as a result, um, most people who've consumed that news look at poverty as a problem for the poor, right? That the poor are basically responsible for their own poverty and really don't look at any kind of systemic issues that might be influencing policy because that's how it's been covered. That's how it's been framed. So these things have huge policy impacts. Um, probably one of the biggest examples that gets brought up is the invasion of Iraq. And there's an argument that you don't get the invasion of Iraq without the phrase, the war on terror. That's a very key phrasing. Um, and it turns out that right after 9-11, um, it was framed as, the government was framing as a, uh, a, ter the, a terrorist attack as a crime, right, as a criminal investigation. Within hours, it very, very quickly became this war language, like a war on terror, which is a completely different, you know, semantic argument that it's a completely different metaphor, it's a different way of looking at the situation that kind of allows for things like, well, A, since it's war, all of a sudden um, all these war powers, right, can get... Um, are on the table, and since the war isn't on a individual or on a country, it's on terror itself, well, A, that means it's kind of inexhaustible, and B, there's nowhere you can't go. I can invade any country. I can even do stuff on American soil. Why? Because I'm fighting terror. I'm not fighting a, a particular nation. So all these metaphors are really powerful when it comes to making policy decisions. In fact, uh, during the Gulf War, there was a conservative framing of the argument around um, should we attack sooner or should we attack later? And what's kind of amazing about that is, you, without realizing it, you've already removed any kind of argument around, well, should we attack or not, right? That we've already somehow eliminated that as an option because what we're really arguing about now is should we attack now or should we attack later, right? It's, it, it makes the framing, makes it sound like, oh, we've already agreed that attacking is what we should do. Um, and you can see that kind of language play out in things like the war on crime or the war on drugs. And you wonder why we have kind of like a militarized police force now. Well, when the metaphor we're using is a war metaphor, that starts to sink in over time. It actually has a real impact. Um, and there's all sorts of like ways that you um, phrase things to um, position it. So, uh, for example, you don't ever say... Uh, we're going to criticize the government. No, you criticize Washington. You talk about those fat cats in Washington, right? Because Washington is sort of a better target. Um, you don't drill for oil. You explore for energy. Um, and now that I think about it, if you ever want to sort of see this really play out, go back and listen to some George Carlin. He was great at 
talking about language and how language kind of influences. I mean, he was basically a comedian whose main fodder was the framing effect. Um, another one, global warming versus climate change. Um, honestly, none of those are, are, are as impactful, I think, as, oh my God, we're all going to die. But I don't know if that, you know, is, is exactly the right language either. Or, well, I think it's the right language, but not the, you know, like, the one people are going to, you know, fit on a bumper sticker. Anyway, um, or, or you remember like during the surge, right? You could say escalation, but escalation sounds like things are getting worse. But surge sounds like, oh, okay, we're doing something now, surge. Um, another one to really pay attention to right now is um, now that we're going to see uh, changes to the tax code is the phrase tax relief, right? That's probably going to get a lot of play right now um, because it's a way of framing the issue that um, that serves, you know, uh, conservative interest. Um and uh, and if I seem to be like harshing on conservatives right now, it's because frankly they're better at it. <laughs> like liberals have sort of often have a kind of crisis of conscience around should we even be using this kind of framing effect? You know, is it dumbing down ideas to do that? Is it somehow immoral to do that? Um, which is you know a valid argument to have, I guess. But it's just if it sounds like a lot of these examples are coming from conservative language, it's because that was a very key, you know, explicit tactic, especially, um, starting the nineties around how to message things. Um, in any case, another one that you really see right now is how we frame, uh, refugees, right? Or do we frame them as here are people who've gone through this traumatic experience and now we need to provide them shelter or are we framing it as a security issue? Oh, here are these people. We don't know anything about them. Maybe they're all terrorists. We shouldn't let them in. Right. Exact same group of people, but a completely different framing, which results in completely different policy decisions. Um, and there are lots and lots and lots and lots of examples of this, but all of that ironically is not what scares me about the framing effect. What really scares me about the framing effect is that framing isn't something that comes out of policy or something that you do to policy. Framing precedes policy. And what I mean by that is we don't look at a situation and then decide what kind of frame we want to apply to it. We're already framing it before we ever encounter it. Frames aren't something that we put take on and off like glasses. Frames are more like just our contact lenses that are in all the time or like glasses that are just bolted to our face or something. We never, ever take off the frame. Once we have a frame, we kind of use it, and we use it to the point where we don't realize it's there anymore. And the only time we realize it's there is if we shift frames, right? If we try on a different set of frames as we're, that we realize, oh, we were actually looking at it from this frame. Um, and... The, this just comes from the fact that like 95% of cognition, right, our actual thinking happens below the threshold of awareness. And in fact, some people think that's a low estimate, right? Um, which is really kind of scary when you think about it because we make really, really important decisions without ever really completely understanding why. And that framing effect is part of it. That frame exists below our ability to even detect that it's there. It's a very pernicious thing. So those instinctive reactions to things like saying, oh, it's 75% lean. I'd rather buy that one than this one over here that says 25% fat when they're the exact same thing right? Um, so I don't know exactly how those frames form. You know, that's sort of one of the things I'm trying to learn about now because they are so in fact powerful. Um, but, uh, the fact that they're always there and they're always influencing how we view the world. I mean, one thing that people do sort of look at is this notion that we view the world very much the way we view ourselves. So Adam Grant was at South by Southwest talking about, um, 
different like interview questions you can ask to find out if somebody's going to be a good culture fit. And one of the things you can ask is um, how often do you think people steal? Um, what percentage of people do you think steal from their employers? Stint, uh, steal ten dollars uh, at least from their employers every month. What percentage of people do that? And someone who guesses a very high percentage, you have to be very suspicious of because the odds are they're guessing that high because they, in fact, steal, <laughs> right? They view the world the rest of the way they see themselves and their justification for their stealing is, well, everybody's a thief, so it's okay for me to steal. But that frame, right, that way of looking at the world is something that's very, very sort of dug in in a way that we can't view. Now, the one kind of, you know... Um, panacea here uh, that I did read, and this is one of the few times I've ever seen a possible solution or like, you know, therapeutic approach for a cognitive bias, um, is try to, th uh, try to think about the decision, right? If let's say I'm giving you the scenario with the, um, the 600 people who might get sick and which approach do you want to take? Um, try thinking about it in a different language, assuming that you know a different language. Um, and if you don't, this becomes a reason to learn at least one other language. Because when you have to make that decision in a different language, a couple things happen. One, you have a little more cognitive distance from the decision, and so you're forced to really think about the words that are being said and what they mean. Secondly, when you think about something in a different language, you start to lose some of the idioms and the metaphors that make some of that framing really impactful. A lot of the reason the framing effect works is because we think in metaphors, and framing effects generally use metaphors um, to make their point. So if you have to think about it in a different language, it starts to take the power of those metaphors away because that idiom may not exist in that language or that metaphor may be a little different in a different language. So it gives you a little bit of you know time and distance to really think about the decision and realize, oh, right, those two things are the same or those two things are absolutely not the same, but you've created a false equivalency or whatever that, whatever that frame is supposed to get you to ignore. It's a little easier to actually see you know, the person behind the curtains pulling the strings because you have to think about it in a different language. So um, it's a very scary bias, and there's here's maybe one way to try to approach it. Um, that's all for this week. Uh, I am David Dylan Thomas, um, and uh, we'll see you on the Cognitive Bias Podcast next time. <laughs>